Hello. Uh, before I start the episode, I just want to let you know a few quick things. One, the audio is, it's not bad. It's a little imperfect just because Tony didn't happen to have a microphone and, you know, why would everybody or anyone necessarily have a microphone? So our audio does bleed over a little bit, but I did everything I could like in the moment when we were recording to minimize my talking over him. I did an imperfect job, but I did my best to minimize that. I also worked quite a bit on the audio to make the overlaps better, but it still does happen sometimes, so sorry about that. Also, the episode just kind of like cuts out at a certain point because I think my internet dropped out. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. I'm pretty sure it was mine. Just dropped out and we just lost connection. And then, you know, as you can see from the runtime, we went long enough to where, you know, we, we, we talked for quite a while and it was awesome to talk to him. It was really great, but he didn't get to plug anything. So I just want to do that real fast. It'll be in the actual notes of the episode, which you possibly would have seen before this anyway but you can follow him on instagram and twitter at tony toast t-o-n-y-t-o-s-t but also you know as we discuss in the episode itself i guess which you will find out about he um he's written for a number of great shows but primarily he created damnation which i believe is on netflix everywhere or for the most part anyway so watch that, Damnation. It's really good. It's like, it's, it's awesome, actually. And uh, there's a lot of cool stuff in it. I'm really surprised. Quite honestly, that it got on TV. Uh, I highly recommend that. Check that out. He also wrote for Longmire. Longmire also is on Netflix. And he also wrote for The Terror, Infamy, which I believe is the second season of The Terror. It's a great season, too. And I believe that's on AMC+. Plus. So there is that. One other thing. He also write, has a Substack. That is at practical.substack.com. And it's him giving practical advice for screenwriters that are trying to break into the business. And, you know, as you'll find out, he has a very non-traditional path. And it's really fascinating stuff. But it's a really interesting guide. And it's it's very clearly communicated. So I highly recommend checking that out. Practical.substack.com. Otherwise, you know, thank you for listening. And uh, here we go. Bye. Mana, mana, mana. Mana, mana, mana. This is Social Discasting. Welcome to Social Discasting, a podcast where my guests and I discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves. I am Brandon, aka Brandon. Hope you're well. My guest is the creator, executive producer, and showrunner of the excellent period drama Damnation, as well as a writer-producer on Longmire and AMC's The Terror. Please welcome Tony Toast. Welcome. Hey. Thanks, Brandon. Hey, thank you for being on. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, totally. I'm, uh, uh, I'm excited to... Uh... To talk. To shoot the proverbial shit, as it were. Gotta start somewhere, I guess. The deeply unfair question. How are you? So how are you? Thank you for asking. I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think there's a certain amount. If, you're, if you are doing well in the current climate, I think you're supposed to perform that less. But today, today I'm doing great. My, I'm at, I live here in Los Angeles with my lovely wife and my two lovely sons and our uh, beyond lovely puppy. And it's, you know, it's kind of nice. My, uh, I, I'm able to work from home. My wife is able to work from home. My boys seem to be having a pretty good summer. My Youngest son is on our back deck, um, dunking on a seven-foot hoop, trying to increase his vertical. Um, my uh, my oldest son is deep into uh, whatever weird um, online role-playing game that he's into. We're uh, we're planning on going to Yellowstone for about ten days uh, later this week, and so that has got me excited. We uh, we haven't done much traveling last year and a half. This will be our first kind of group, um, real just for us type of travel in, you know, however long, a, a year and a half. And so we're excited to see some nature and kind of, you know, I've never been to Yellowstone. So, you know, all in all, you know, we're all healthy and kind of happy. So we're doing doing well. Well, that's, first of all, that's awesome on many levels. But yeah, I know what you mean, though, in terms of um, you don't want to be bad, but you also feel weird about saying I'm good yeah. in all of this because it's all just so much. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, that take your wins where you can get them, and that's a win. Yeah. And, uh, how was it going back to, to Missouri, too? Because I know you went th- back there for a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. That was okay. It was interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, <laughs> like, it's... Uh, so, yeah, we went... 
we went back to see family. My my wife is from Arkansas, and all of her family is in Arkansas. So we went down there, went to Lake Washita, um, uh, which is just a wonderful place to be. Um, her parents and her brothers each have um, trailers near the lake. And, uh, and so we get there and we go up, get out on the pontoon boat and the, uh, her brothers have, a uh, a speed boat and, uh, the lake is pretty empty. My sons, it's like their favorite place in the world. They get dragged behind on an inner tube at, um, unreal speeds. And we go out to a, a cove and we float in the water and, you know, pee in the lake and drink beer it's pretty awesome and then you know go find a restaurant somewhere uh on the lake and uh and go eat like you know catfish or what have you it's a pretty nice getaway so that was cool and then my family is all from missouri uh i'm born early childhood in southern missouri and then moved back there in my teen years and and that's you know that's it's fine it's good to see family i hadn't seen um seen my family since my uh my uh, adopted dad, uh, passed away last year. So it was good to see everyone, um, and to kind of touch base. And, but it is also like, it's, you know, like I, I've been out here in LA, we've been here for maybe seven years, eight years now. And I could tell a difference in a way that I hadn't before. Like I'd always kind of felt like returning, to that part of the country the ozarks felt like returning home from being where i was a stranger in the city to returning to my natural habitat this time for the first time i kind of felt like actually i'm an la person out here in the ozarks uh and i almost like my dna is different than most of the people around me and that like you know like i'm kind of in a weird way i felt um not not like there's anything bad happened, just in a way, you know, an existential lack of kinship that I hadn't felt before. And I think that's just, I don't know if it's like, you know, cultures drifting apart, but I think it's probably just me getting kind of spoiled and used to L.A. life <laughs> and, you know, L.A. food and L.A. culture in a way that, um, you know, because I'm somebody who generally has this blue collar chip on his soldier on his shoulder. And but then I go back to the Ozarks and I'm like, oh no no, actually I'm kind of now I'm one of these blue bubble type of uh, you know um, L.A. you know wh- whatever you want want to call that that isn't you know, I'm no longer the salt of the earth guy that I used to pretend I was like I can't even pretend it anymore. So that was interesting to kind of realize. You're a that. coastal elite. That's yeah, right. You know, that's right. what. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. The uh, that's a good term for it. I, I did feel. <laughs> Or maybe I just stopped the denial of being a coastal, coastal elite in a way uh, this time. But it may have been just that, yeah, I don't know. It may have been like, we usually, when we go back, we go to like, say, you know, uh, Fort Smith. But we, we go to like, we'll go to Little Rock or we'll go to Fort uh, to Fayetteville and see our, our friends from like our college days and from graduate. I, I did my uh, MFA at the University of Arkansas and we'll meet up with friends and, and there's a uh, a certain almost literary arts culture in our crowd uh, that we, when my wife and I met um, in Arkansas in like like eighteen years ago, um, like that crowd, like that, that there's there's more of an overlap between you know our kind of conversations or our kind of way of being in LA and our being with those friends. But this this last trip, it was all just family, it was all just lake, and it was all just. Um, you know, pockets outside of, uh, out of the cities. And so maybe that had to do with part of it, but it's just as, as someone who I'm, as I think probably a lot of writers do, I kind of go through life, like observe, like, I, you know, I'm not fully embodied in myself. I'm kind of always, uh, at, you know, video village watching myself. And so like to kind of go through that yeah, and yeah. to kind of be at a remove watching myself and it's like, Oh yeah, look at, yeah, look at that fish out of water trying to hang out on the lake and try to, you know, keep up with uh, with all the people out here in a way that, you know, he's not really fooling anybody. Uh, As if you, you left home instead of you went home, right? Yeah, I no, totally, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that there's that an adjustment. Adjust. But to your point, like, but with L.A., by many accounts, it's a it can be a pretty great lifestyle, great weather, great food, great amenities. I can imagine it being 
I've talked to plenty of people who moved to LA and it's, it's a very easy lifestyle uh, to which to adapt. Yeah. I mean, if if you've got, if you can afford it, if you've got, you know, either through combo of good fortune and work or in terms of your housing situation, uh, it can't, it's, and you know, knock on wood, we're in a good situation right now. Um, It's fucking awesome. You know? Yeah. The weather's great. You know, you drive, you know, five, 10 minutes in any direction and you're in a different neighborhood with a, a different kind of, I don't know, um, cultural flavor to it, you know, so you can, you know, go to Koreatown, you can go, you know, walk down the street to a, uh, you know, a great taco truck or, or you know, what, what, whatever you can, you know, go to, you know, drive eight minutes and be in Hipster Village or you can, you know, you can just, you can access so much variety um, with so little effort that it's, um, yeah, sometimes when you get out of LA, the kind of little bit more monoculture of, of smaller towns sometimes can be kind of startling. Yeah, and, and I imagine too that like, uh, well, a couple of things like that. One, LA as much as anything seems like more of a series of cities than just one, totally. you know, overall blanket city. But also like just the state of California has every form of topography seemingly and not that far away from even Southern California or LA. So it's like, it feels like it has something for everyone. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's very um, accommodating, I think, to whatever your lifestyle happens to be. I mean, like we're not, my, my youngest son is really into nature and he would actually prefer to live in Arkansas, but we're not like, you know, like the big hiking and going to the ocean types. But if we were, it'd be really, you know, it would be great. We're a little bit more like find a nice restaurant, go to the movies, um, maybe hit an art museum or bookstore type of family generally. And it's perfect for that too. And so, and then if, yeah, what, and then everything else in between is, you know, myself and my sons are pretty into sports. And so it's, you know, there's great, you know, there's great sports. Uh, you know, there's so many, you know, both to watch and to take part in, you know, it's, uh, it, it is you can get you can get very acclimated and very kind of spoiled in a good way by it and yeah. you don't quite realize the variety of options that you have at your fingertips until you leave and that's um yeah like we, my, my wife and i we both grew up in small towns and we both thought we would hate los angeles and like when we were finishing grad school looking at places where we wanted to try to get work because at a, uh, in the past, like my wife's an academic and I used to be. And so uh, we were kind of looking at, you know, where could we both possibly get academic jobs? And we just decided like, you know, as long as we weren't in LA or New York, we'd be happy. And then of course we end up in LA and then we end up just loving it. And so, yeah, it's, um, it was surprising to us. But I imagine too, that there's almost like, <laughs> you probably would have loved it sooner if there wasn't this automatic, and, and I get it, like built-in resistance to it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Yeah, your, cause the the perceptions of LA, both good and bad, really precede themselves. Yeah, and you know, and like, and and I guess for me, and this speaks more to me probably than anything. Part of me is like, no, I'm an individual. I'm not gonna love it. And then you go there, like, oh, this is great. Yeah, I get it. This is heaven. Yeah, and then the nice thing, yeah, like I think both of us had the kind of Beverly Hills nine zero two one zero version in our heads or or, or whatever and it's like you know, and there's pockets of that but like you know we almost never go to the west side i only go to you know beverly hills or santa monica if i have a meeting i have to go to we're on the kind of east side which um is a little bit more i guess uh you know less um less ritzy i guess you know and less uh demonstrably you know um uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous and so like part of it was just like our excitement surprise like oh yeah of course there's more to the city than than what we saw in like two tv shows growing up you know there's oh it's not just all rodeo drive oh anyway. yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and so like it's like for us like to like get over the initial um being intimidated in a way just by the size of it and not knowing where to start and um to kind of like actually discover parts of the of this of the city that's um yeah like it's you would have to work to to not find a place in la that you could kind of feel i think comfortable Uh, unless you just have to be in a small town or have to be in nature then that's a different um animal but if you don't mind being around people um uh, it's great 
Yeah, I imagine. And and also, though, I think I would imagine, too, that a certain percentage that people, too, are... It's a, it's a town that's driven by a lot of things, but certainly the entertainment industry. So a lot of people go out there in your position and any other to be a part of that, you know, in theory, anyway. Yeah. Far easier said than done, to put it lightly. But they all are going out there with some form of maybe that same mentality than coming back. I would imagine predominantly you know pretty nicely surprised because you can't underestimate good temperate weather honestly on top of everything else it is really a, like yeah it's um like well yeah one time we flew into arkansas and it was raining and like one of my sons was maybe like six and he's just like why is there water falling from the sky <laughs> just like, yeah yeah son that's that's called rain um uh but uh yeah like it's you know the 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 interesting yeah like you know like i've i've found it i'm not super sociable but like we found our like group of friends just simply um through our you know taking our kids to preschool and school and picking them up and you know you start chatting with a fellow uh parent and you realize oh like yeah you're you know you're a film editor or you're uh, um a musician and you, you know, you geek out about the same bands and the same movies and stuff. And it's just, yeah, it's kind of like, um, at least in, in our kind of neighborhood, um, uh, attracts a lot. Uh, it's easy to find, you know, people who, you know, geek out on Criterion Collection and like, you know, uh, indie rock and old, you know, um, uh, soul music or whatever that, you know happens to float your boat. I mean, I think on the flip side, I mean that can be kind of self-selecting. I think it can also just be incredibly brutal on people, especially if you move here without any resources or any connections. I think you know, like I, I kind of have, you know, I kind of parachuted in um, after I already had. Uh, like I started writing on my first show when I was living in Seattle while my wife was doing a postdoc, and then we were in. Uh, Michigan and then we only moved to LA um, like my third season on the show and so I was I was able to kind of parachute in you know in a a little bit more of a stable kind of little bit secure secure position than a lot of people who come to LA and kind of have to scratch their way through you know kind of you know brutal networks and uh, and you know, encounter high rates of assholes and stuff. And so, like my my experience of LA is also doesn't necessarily map onto everybody's experience because I had a pretty privileged kind of way to kind of just sail in in very good circumstances. So, so I don't want to you know totally you know pretend like everybody's going to have the same experiences as, as mine. I just happen to have had a very um, how lucky way of of entering the city <laughs> non-traditional yeah i feel like nothing about your trajectory in the entertainment industry from i know you've you've uh, chronicled this on your Substack, which is really great uh practical screenwriting a lot of really great stuff in there too but it's just a fascinating story which you know i guess you can't underestimate what it is to be a non-traditional story, whatever the phraseology is, mm-hmm. in an entertainment industry where so many people have a similar trajectory. Yeah. And I guess in that regard, you it's it's maybe better to stand out because then that's intriguing for a lot of people. Because, uh, you know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I mean, it just, there's so many, you know, like sometimes people say like, well, how do you break in? It's just like, it's you can't really tell other people how to um it's like, you know, like, how do you fall in love? Well, you, you know, I mean, you can kind of like prepare the ground for it and you can try to put yourself in good situations, but you can't, there's no, you know, step-by-step formula or, you know, instruction manual. Like for me, like, you know, I wanted to like write and direct since I was a teenager, but because of where I grew up in a small town and a trailer park, nobody in my family gone to college. I was graduated high school working at a pickle factory, going to a community college, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, yeah, there's no way somebody like me ever does that. So I kind of diverted my way, my, you know, just like, okay, just get through community college. And then, then, you know, then I stepped away from school and I just started working so I could save up to apply 
for you know schools to try to get a bachelor's degree and so i you know worked worked for a while lived with my parents and then i saved up and i went to this weird christian college in the missouri ozarks and i got my bachelor's degree there okay like now i'm gonna live in a trailer with my friends work weird jobs around branson missouri so i can save up to um apply to creative writing um mfa uh programs because i also like poetry and so that you know i took time off applied got into some programs realized i could only afford like i, I got into some really prestigious ones but then you know i realized like i actually couldn't afford the gas to drive to, to like baltimore or to seattle let alone like get an apartment like it because i was just so kind of so kind of small town and so kind of like had no sense of what all of that looked like just how how to how to go out into a city and try you know like i you know if you have no money and you have no connections and you don't really nobody in your family has done that sort of thing so I ended up going to University of Arkansas, which, which had a good program, but it was two hours away. So I could afford that drive. And I actually like, you know, I was a grad student living in the undergrad dorms because I literally did not know how to look for an apartment. And I, I didn't even realize that you had to have like a deposit, um, you know, ahead of time. Like, and, and I didn't have that money, you know, like I, I, I kind of had exhausted my, um, my resources. So like I spent the first year in a, um, you know, undergrad dorm. And, uh, and then like somebody in the program graduated and moved out of a, um, a duplex and I moved into his duplex and that's, that was my first step towards like, you know, learning how to, how to rent an apartment and, you know, like these things that like, you know, like if, if none of this is part of your, you know, you just don't, it's just all so foreign. So like, there was no way that I was going to come out to like LA in my twenties because like, I just, I, I didn't know how to do that. And so I, I kind of made these weird steps where, you know, I, I got an MFA in poetry. My MFA thesis won like a nice literary award, got published by university press. Uh, but you know, I, I still didn't, I didn't know how to turn that into professor job. So like I, you know, had my MFA, I had my bachelor's degree. I had a nice uh, national literary award called the Walt Whitman award. I had a book out, and all I could get was a, um, a coffee shop job. And so I, I was like, how, how am I going to figure out how to like turn this into a life? And at the time, my wife was getting a political science uh, PhD at the University of North Carolina. I'd moved out there with her and she decided to switch over to business uh, to get her PhD. And I was like, well, OK, maybe I'll, maybe instead of working as a barista and a traffic counter, maybe I'll apply to PhD programs and if I don't have to go into debts, you know, I can get a little bit of a stipend and, um, and then I, you know, in that six year period, I can figure out how to turn this then into a professor job. And so I, we both got into Duke. And so, you know, we started our family, did our PhDs. And then, um, yeah, I published a second book. I published a book about Johnny Cash. I did my dissertation and stuff. And then, um, and then actually got hired, um, for a creative writing professor gig out in Washington state while my wife was doing a postdoc. And then I kind of had this epiphany. It's like, Oh shit, I hate academia. I desperately <laughs> want to get out of this line of work. I do not fit in here at all. Like I've spent like the last 16 years of my life. Like, like, you know, I didn't really start reading until I discovered Vonnegut and Franz Kafka and Flannery O'Connor. When I was like 18, 19, I thought books were just boring shit until then. Cause like, there's no books in the house and we only got assigned really boring shit in school. And then I took a, a class at community college and they actually assigned really good books. And for the first time, like, Oh shit, like this is cool. And so like, I was just playing <laughs> like, Oh, I didn't know this was possible with books. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, Oh, like this actually doesn't seem like a dead documents, you know, written for dead people or for, you know, lifeless nerds. Like this actually kind of makes me laugh and, or makes me horny or it makes me, um, yeah, you know, sparks my imagination. Like it, it actually seems to communicate with uh, the human animal that is me in a way that all this, you know, boring Updike shit doesn't. No offense if people like Updike, or if you do. Um, but yeah, so so like I had been playing this just this huge catch up game because I got because um, I felt like oh god, like there's this whole world and I didn't know and I'm so far behind. I want to read all the books and I want to know all the art and I want to see all the movies. And then, yeah, then I, you know, I kind of, 
kind of caught up where I didn't feel like intellectually deficient. Um, um, and then realize, Oh God, I, you know, like, what have I done? I, I've now set myself up for probably a life of misery because I, I just, I'm not, I'm not cut out to be like, I love teaching. I love students. Um, but like the whole departmental element and being on committees and office politics. There's a creative ceiling with that, right? I mean, yeah, you're, you're not exactly like, uh, you're not getting to to really stretch your creative legs, as it were, because it's kind of you kind of know what you have with that to a certain extent, right? Yeah, like yeah, no, and it's so yeah, it seems so kind of like I don't know. I don't want to be unfair. I have friends who are academic. I mean, my wife's an academic, um, but it doesn't fit my notion of what a rewarding creative life could be like. It's it, you know, it, it feels like just putting um, you know putting shit on your resume as opposed to actually kind of trying to find something a little bit more exciting or transcendent or just risky in a way. Like, um, anyway, so yeah. So like, you know, like I had gone through this whole weird thing where I had this mini literary career as much as a poet can these days, you know, like I edited, like I did love, um, I edited an online magazine, co-edited one with my friend, uh, Zachary Schomburg. And then I edited my own where I, you know, it was like experimental poets, but also um, lots of global poetry and translation and, and kind of basically soliciting work from translators and from, and doing interviews with, um, you know, critics and poets I admire. Like, I love that shit. And so that was great. And that was like my self-education. But then um, a friend of mine from the University of Arkansas MFA program, Nick Pizzolatto, uh, who went on to do yeah. True Detective. Uh, so we we were we were pals um, in the MFA program, and then and then he was at North Carolina at the same time my wife and I, and we got we got a good deal closer then. And then his first novel came out, and was that Galveston? Galveston, yeah, yeah. And it got you know deservedly got really great reviews and got interest from some Hollywood literary agents, and you know, and Nick was telling them you know like I would love to write the script for for my novel you know like nobody knows it better and they told him well you know before anyone would ever hire you you have to have a sample script to show that you can actually write screenplays and so he's like okay and then he like went home and like in a month wrote like six tv episode scripts including like the pilot to true detective like he just (laughs) it just poured out of him and so he sent he's like you know like how about these and they're like oh holy shit like this guy's uh, an alien and so they like Basically, they, you know, he was a professor at Indiana. They flew him out to L.A., got tons of job offers and got, you know, a bunch of shit set up. And he quit his uh, professor job, moved to L.A. And like, you know, he's been off to the races since then. And so, like, for me, watching this, watching my buddy do this, I was like, oh, shit. Like, like Nick didn't have an uncle in the industry. He didn't have, like, he had this book. That was his in. But then he just wrote some great scripts. And then all of a sudden, all these doors opened for him. And. You know, I'm pretty cocky. I'm like, well, hell, if Nick can do it, I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I'm a poet and he's a, you know, fiction writer who knows like genre fiction inside and out and and who's been doing it for a lot more. I'm I'm pretty cocky, confident. Well, yeah, I mean, I I watch movies. I can write a script. (laughs) And so like I was hanging out with him and he's like, yeah, like, you know, like this is great. This is so much better than academia because he was looking to get out of academia as well. And so he's like, you know, write some shit. And then I'll pass it along to my agents. He was at the small boutique boutique agency. Tell them that you're a good dude and vouch for you and see if they like it. And so this was when, like, my last semester of doing my PhD, we were in um, Seattle while my wife was doing the postdoc. And uh, and so, like, I finished my PhD early, uh, the, the dissertation early. So I had, I had like, a, a couple months. And so I just wrote some scripts. And he sent them to his agents and like his agents called me like the next day, maybe. And they're like, you know, can we represent you? We really like your, your writing and your voice. And uh, we'd like to, you know, send these around and see if we can get you some meetings and maybe get you a manager and see what can happen. And so they did that. Um, and, you know, I'd written a pilot for an original show, Tangle Eye. And they said, you know, maybe you want to write more episodes just to kind of show what you can do. So I wrote like, like three more episodes while they were sending my scripts around. And then, and so I had a, like this packet of like four episodes and they, they basically set up a, a week and a half of meetings for me. Um, and so I flew in, stayed with Nick for a while and his guest outs stayed in my agent's pool house 
for part of it because like you know i couldn't afford to put myself up in a hotel and um and like that you know like i kind of I, I came in at you know i was like 34 35 and i had you know my agents really kind of sold you know like this is a guy this is a pure product of the missouri ozarks you know is you know biological mythologized you yeah yeah you know biological father was in jail you know Grew up in trailer parks, but then he taught himself, you know, then he went and got a PhD and became an award-winning poet. And now he's here as a representative of Blue Collar America. I had no idea. Like, I just thought, you know, I'm just a dude, come, another writer coming in to, like, hug his stuff. But then all the people that I met with, they're just like, yeah, tell me about your life story. This is so fascinating. We don't meet people like you, you know. And then, you know, and we talk about the scripts and stuff. And it kind of, the timing, I think, worked out really well. So, like, you know, I came in for that week and a half of meetings and end up getting a freelancing gig writing for Longmire um, for its first season. And then like um, ha- got pilot deals set up at three different TV studios. And so like, you know, all of a sudden I, I was like, Oh shit, I'm a, like a professional screenwriter now. And so I, I quit my creative writing job and, um, and kind of worked remotely from Seattle um, because it was freelance. I could do that. Then from Ann Arbor. And then um, I talked with my uh, showrunner on Longmire about how I could, you know, stop being a freelancer and be like, you know, work my way up the, um, um, the hierarchy a little bit and um, become an official staff member, maybe be on a producer track. And she, you know, she told me I had to move to LA first. And so that's what moved us out here to, uh, to Los Angeles. And then, you know, I stuck around on the show for like five seasons and ended up becoming a producer and kind of learned all the ins and outs of making television. So like I I had like in a weird way, I kind of stumbled into putting myself, I think in a really good position when I did try to break in because like I did have, you know, a publication record. I had a, you know, a, a fairly, you know, unusual for Hollywood, um, a life story but then but i think like all, all the years spent uh as a poet as a critic writing a johnny cash book doing all this editing and stuff i developed a real just sense of my own writerly voice and and, and you know and and my own kind of bullshit detector and, and and just this use of just being very driven and, and getting rewards from the writing itself and so like that all that, like, I was in a, I was, and, and also I, I kind of had my shit together. I had, you know, we had a, uh, you know, I, a happy marriage and, 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 and had children. And, you know, I wasn't this dumb, drunken idiot playing in bands and, like, you know, trying to, like. You're pretty settled, yeah. You know, trying trying to, you know, like, in my 20s, if I came out to L.A. in my 20s, even if I could afford it with my mindset of, like, seeing how far I could push my lifestyle, like. I may not have, um, you know, made it like just physically, you know, but like by the time I came in at 35, I was kind of had my shit together and, and kind of um, knew how to, um, how to, you know, not immediately self-sabotage myself in a way that I wouldn't have been able to resist self-sabotage in my 20s. Yeah, but something can be said too for, again, to your point about like being in your 30s as opposed to your 20s, about having the life experiences and having a, a previous professional track and realizing what you didn't want. Yeah. And that giving you that context to then realize, oh, this could be interesting. Or this is what I wanted in my teens but didn't even think was possible. Yeah. And to now have that and, you know, almost a lifetime later. Like that's, it, it just, it feels like all of these different things, you know, they say stuff like it's all about who you know. And that can only go so far too because then you still have to have the goods. Or you still have to gain traction in a town of people all trying to gain traction. And it seems like the best way, the worst way to try to get, to gain, gain traction is to try to. And it just seems like it almost has to happen organically, almost just randomly sometimes. Yeah, you know, sometimes. Weird alchemy. Yeah, I do think so. I think, yeah, because I mean, there is, there are limits to how far just knowing people will get you. Because like, you you. you you get in from the edges enough and you realize everybody knows everybody to some degree. Like there's so many people sure. who know other people. So that's not enough. And there's, you know, but there, there has to be something that you create something about your voice, your life story, how you do whatever you do, or even just how you are in the room. If people just really like being around you, 
whatever something that that will be found um appealing or valued um by whoever has access to power or capital in order to actually you know translate your skill set or your personality into a paycheck and and into a career and that's tricky because like sometimes depending on who's in power and what their blind spots in the shit you're making could be awesome could be amazing but they just simply don't see it or recognize it because you know they don't recognize anything outside some template of what they think a, a Hollywood TV show or movie should look like in terms of who should be the lead or, or whose story should be told. And, you know, so there's all these, and sometimes you just don't find the right people, you know, like so much, you know, like I think, you know, if you find like four or five people in Hollywood that have some kind of leverage who truly believe in your talent, like you can have a career um, based on that. You just, but it's like, not everybody is going to respond that way to because you may not um, be scratching whatever itch that they're looking to get scratched. And that's... Um, and it could be on that day. You know, like it's... Oh, it's every yeah. TV show, every movie is an absolute miracle. Oh, that yeah. That they get made in the first place, let alone, you know, like a Longmire, you know, six seasons. Yeah. That's wild. It is wild, especially since it got killed off once you know in the in the middle of that run um you know a and e canceled but it's it. doing well on netflix though it does numbers like people watch that show consistently yeah like it when it is like if you get away from the coasts but maybe it's also on the coast but if you could just you know like no one in hollywood like almost no one in hollywood like they like they don't know Longmire really. I, I mean, I don't encounter people. Like I never get meetings or I never get people reaching out. Just like, hey, I really love your work on Longmire. I'm a big fan of that show. We should do something like that. Like, I only get meetings because of um, somebody read my script. You know, but if I, you know, when we're filming in Calgary or um, in Vancouver or going back to Missouri or Arkansas, like Longmire is, you know, like that's that that's a hit show and that's that's like a big fucking deal out there you know it's not quite yellowstone big or ozark big but it's pretty you know it's still like you know four or five years after it's um ended maybe it's four or five years. i mean maybe it's like four years since it ended i, I can't tell about time anymore but it's still, it still yeah, has an audience it's still alive yeah and, and like i think it just recently dropped out of nielsen's top 10 um most streamed shows for original like streaming shows like it it just hung it's hung in there because i think people rewatch it and people discover it and it's a kind of a comfort um food and and it's you know i think it's a well done show so like that's uh it, it holds up to attention so like that's um but yeah like i mean but yeah i don't know if i even would have had a career if that show hadn't happened to be looking not just for a, a last writer to fill out the um, writer's room but for a freelance writer so like I didn't have to be in LA to work on that show I could come in for two weeks and go back home and be a functional part of that show but also like I was their third choice um, to hire for for the last writing gig like the, their first choice um, he his own show got greenlit and so he backed out uh, to go do his own show the second choice was a writer director who's film got greenlit so he left and so then they were down to me i was like the third choice and so it's not like i walked into hollywood with my you know genius screenplay and everybody fell at my feet like no like like five six seven eight different things you know all had to fall the right way and then there's this little window that opened and then that show got you know the show that i did get hired for got renewed and they liked what I did enough to bring me back. And, you know, like, yeah, it's, um, there's a lot <laughs> more, like, I, I like, you know, I like to tell myself that, yeah, like it was inevitable that I was going to have a nice working career, but like so much of that, um, was left a chance and was just good fortune. Um, that, um, uh, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to overlook that I think um, when you're yeah. like, looking back and you're telling yourself your own heroic narrative about, you know, uh, how you got wherever you are. It's, it, it is incredible too, like to your point about how you can tick every box of what it is to have whatever pedigree to be the perfect candidate to be the next big thing in Hollywood. But 
to a certain degree, none of it matters without love. Yeah. Like, no. it's this inexplicable thing. You cannot, you know, like, I just think about how, like, some of the best screenplays ever written are the ones that will never see the light of day. Oh, totally, totally. Because so much of it is just so wild, you know. It's just, uh, yeah, and stuff like that just kind of blows my mind. But um, I did have a question about Damnation. Yeah. That when you took it out, I know you wrote to the first two episodes, like, as a proof of concept. You also had James Mangold, at the time attached to the director of the pilot. He ended up producing the show as well, or ultimately produced the show. But... Writing those first two episodes for the sake of like part of a presentation, did that change the way you wrote those scripts as opposed to the way you might have if it was just like a pilot and, you know, the more quote unquote normal process? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, it was, you know, so that writing those first two episodes. So like this was maybe my second or third season on Longmire, which I enjoyed a lot. Like I, um, I used my yeah, it was right at the end of my is my third season because, yeah, because we moved out at the end of my second season when I was writing the last episode, and so, um, you know, I was learning coming from you know like a nice thing about being a poet or writing uh, a book about Johnny Cash was that you have total creative control. The downside is like absolutely nobody reads it and you don't make any money. <laughs> um, the good side about you know writing produced scripts or or just getting paid to write in in Hollywood is that you know you can actually make um, absurdly amounts of money or just decent amounts of money. The downside is that like you almost never have your 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 amount of creative control is plummets. Uh, you know, like I loved working on Longmire, but I was writing in somebody else's voice, somebody else's characters kind of serving a, a, a benevolent master, but uh, serving a master. And so I, I had a little bit of, of like, you know, almost just um, built up a little bit of, I don't even, not even resentment, but just uh, pent up creative energy that wasn't getting out because I was so, well, I wanted to write their show well enough to keep that job because like, that, you know, that, that was what sure. was bringing my family out there. And, you know, and wanted to serve that, that show. But you were telling somebody else's story. Tell someone else's story. And then I, you know, one of the shows that I'd, um, I, I, you know, had a deal with one of the uh, TV studios and like I actually created and pitched and sold a show loosely based on um, my biological father and set in the Ozarks and some elements taken from Lee's family. And so it was a very personal show. And then um, was kind of, uh, air, unceremoniously kind of um, fired from it. You know, like like that show was like taken away from me at the outline stage because like the president of the studio had kind of done this bait and switch. Basically, he was like attracting young um, up-and-coming writers to pitch shows. And then as soon as they sold them, he would kick them off and then um, give that show over to more seasoned writers who had uh, expensive overall deals. Like so, it's just like this really uh, shady practice, and that that, that was kind like of idea farming, basically. Basically, yeah. And so, um, and then there's this other right on the heels of that. There's this other incident where um, my agent thought that I was being offered uh, a job to create or show run a show, but uh, and and so like I was like watched to adapt this like foreign show into an American um, program. And so I'm watching it with that in mind. And then, you know, she calls me up like two days later. Wait, that was a miscommunication. They, they actually just want you to come in to interview for a staff job, which is fine. But it was like also like that was a, a mind fuck. So anyways, I had this sequence of kind of mind fucks in a way. And and my kind of way of dealing with it was to just while I'm working on Longmire, I'm just going to go off. Uh, when I have spare time and I'm just going to write something totally for me, like not develop it, not try to um, write what I think the market wants or what some studio or some producer heard last week that networks are looking for or stuff like that. It's just like, just write my dream show. And if it sucks, you know, at least I got to write it for myself, but if it's cool, maybe I can turn it into something. And so like that, that was like, so it was almost like it was a coping mechanism to like, okay, like I, I'm going to be the best um, creative citizen I can on Longmire and I'm going to, you know, get over my hard feelings on these other kind of letdowns and I'm just going to put that energy into a um, an original script. And then, you know, I wrote the first one, really got 
infatuated with the characters in the world and and but also i had um the model in my mind like when nick uh created and sold true detective he wrote the first two episodes got a director attached got the stars attached and then got a yeah. uh, a um you know a bidding war and i was like well that packaged it right yeah oh. and so i thought you know well maybe i could try to do something like that and so then you know um so that was part of my thought for doing the first two episodes but it was most but that was kind of after i'd written it at at the beginning, it was basically, you know, it was a almost a form of um, psychic therapy, I guess, of anything to like just oh, write fair. for myself. <laughs> fair enough. Like, okay, let me let me get some control in this chaos. Exactly. Write my thing. Just do it just for me without all the, to your point, like commercial considerations. Thinking about all basically, yeah, truly, like not trying to appease anybody else but yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I said it before, but it, it's a great show. And this can transition into talking movies because that's always a thing. Anybody with a mutual interest, I'm all about doing that. But the two movies that came to mind when I was watching Damnation were Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Oh, wow. With the preacher character, I guess more specifically. Yeah. Thought about that. But then also, I don't know, I've not talked to a bunch of people that have seen this, but Bound for Glory. Oh, yeah. The yeah. Ashby movie. Yeah, yeah, totally. And maybe it's more a little bit on the nose because of dust bullish and it's about labor relations and woody guthrie but yeah those were the two mind like what movies did you have any movies or, or like tv shows maybe uh i, I know, did deadwood is i know a big influence for you yeah deadwood is a big influence like to a degree that um my wife um when i'm working on a script yeah I, um she would you know encourage me not to watch deadwood because i do my my <laughs> shitty uh david milch impersonation but um but yeah, like well, I mean, so I live and breathe seventy cinema. So you're right, like in the um, right there on, 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 especially in terms of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, because like when I was, well, the 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 how I started conceiving of the characters, I originally wrote the Creeley character, the cowboy Pinkerton that Logan Marshall Green played. I um, I was watching um, uh, the man who shot Liberty Balance, uh, John Wayne, <laughs> James Stewart, and Lee Marvin, and I got. I was so fascinated by Lee Marvin's character of Liberty Balance and just thinking like, well, what does that guy do when he's not on screen and what got him to this point? And, and like, and Lee Marvin had kind of played variants on this kind of heavy Western dude, like in bad day at black rock and in, um, uh, seven men from now, Bud Bedecker Western that I really, really love. And so like, that was actually the starting point. I was like, okay, I'm going to write a, um, uh, the show around a Lee Marvin character. Um, and, you know, I found a, about the Iowa la uh, farmer wars and the labor battles in the, in the thirties. So that seemed like, you know, like it's not in the old West. Cause like that would be a tough, tough sell. Um, so I guess I did have some things, some thoughts, but I thought like originally I was going to have it be a movie script actually. Cause like the first part was going to take place in the old West. And then uh, when two characters are young, and then we were gonna, they were gonna encounter each other thirty years later in the nineteen thirties. So that was my original conceit. And then I got more into the idea of doing it as a TV show. But anyways, so I started off designing one character for Lee, the Lee Marvin kind of archetype, and then the other one was like for Clint Eastwood, the the false preacher character in Thunderbolt, Nightfoot, and in Pale Rider. This yeah. idea of the the violent man who arrives as a man of God. And, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of a trope, but it's a trope I like. Uh, and it opened up, um, you know, ways to kind of, I don't know, talk about politics in a way that didn't use contemporary political language. And the landscape's just different enough that, you know, there's this mix between Christianity and populism and even Marxism and class warfare in the 30s. That was interesting. Anyways, but yeah, that... Um, that, that those were the kind of starting points for me was the Lee Marvin and the clean Clint Eastwood archetypes. And then I just kind of started coming up with characters around that. But in, in, you know, in terms of how we, you know, designed the show, like, yeah, bound for glory was, you know, we had stills from that up everywhere. Bad day at black rock, you know, John sales mate one, um, lot, you know, assassination of Jesse James, um, by uh coward robert ford uh, like like lot, lots of westerns and uh, and lots of 70s crime films like charlie barrick and and stuff like that so it was uh 
yeah, it's kind of kind of a, a a weird mix of things. Like when we, one thing I did in the Damnation Riders room is like I constantly had film screening silently in the room while we were um, breaking stories, just just so my writers room could basically soak in the iconography that I wanted us to be working in. Cause I wanted us to like kind of bring the iconography of the Western, but bring it to a very specific uh, time and place. And then I also wanted to, you know, like those kind of macho seventies, you know, walking tall, Billy Jack, stuff like that. I just fucking love, you know, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Like that was in there too. And sometimes I'd stop the room so we could, you know, see a key scene or, or, you know, um, Weirdly, do you know Michael Ritchie's Prime Cut with Lee Marvin and Gene Hackman? Sissy Sates. I've Spacer. watched that. I've watched that twice this year. Oh yeah, oh, nice. uh, yeah. Yeah, it's well. What's funny though is that you know it's funny the seventies because I've this year I've been and and to a certain degree last year though, but I've watched like seventy or eighty movies from the seventies. Yeah, this year. nice. Just a full, full deep dive. Prime Cut a couple times. Bound for Glory. Cool. Charlie Varick relatively recently. Yeah. Uh, night moves all night moves is dope. everything yeah it's amazing and you know five easy five easy pieces and yeah. so many things um, yeah that, that's but, the shit have, have you seen what was it? um crap it flickered in my head and then it just this oh electro glide in blue no i'm that's, not that's pretty so that's 1973 and it's kind of like the conservative answer to easy rider um and it's it's like this uh robert blake um is this like diminutive um, highway patrol um, motorcycle cop, and it's uh, it takes place in and around Monument Valley where John Ford did his um, uh, did his westerns, oh, and it's um, Conrad Hall. I think Conrad Hall shot it, so the cinematography is amazing. Anyways, that like just in terms of the because like all those films you're talking about, like that is my shit. Uh, but like Electric Light and Blue kind of slides nicely into that um, that kind of uh, that kind of vibe. That's interesting. Okay, this is in no way obviously it's quite the opposite of anything, any kind of a original observation. But you know, you hear about the '70s and how mythic it is about all of these amazing movies, such a formative, creative decade for film, and then you watch them, and if you really inundate yourself, at least to the degree that I have. And this is my observation: is that like, oh yeah, there's a reason people say it's the best. Yeah, it's on the the unbelievable, like fervent creativity, and how they just the confidence and creativity, and how they just take their time, or they go fast, and you have every different variation of everything. It's unbelievable. Like, yeah, no, unbelievable. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, there's, I mean, I, I joke. When you know when I talk with people in the industry, they ask you, know, "Have you seen this? Have you seen that?" It's like, no, I'm just I'm mostly watching shit from the '70s, you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, and part of it is just because yeah, all so many of the films because like you know like the studios like for the first time they're like we don't know what American pub the American public wants, but they responded to Bonnie and Clyde, they responded to Easy Rider, they responded to The Graduate. We didn't get like we don't know why, so maybe we just trust you know maybe we just throw some money at some talented filmmakers and so like there's this variety of even the types of stories and or the tonal inflections available to the stories that wasn't like kind of didn't hit corporate checkpoints and wasn't like there was no sure bets it was like it was like kind of like you know like um maybe cable drama for a while there between you know um the start of the sopranos and the ed- end of like mad men or something where it's just like yeah yeah we we don't know why like but people are responding to this stuff and you know but you know but like you know like in the 70s like just the 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 actors and actresses like just the variety of faces and energies they didn't all look like ken dolls you know and and they well, were like dustin hoffman and and Gene Hackman, for example, or, yeah. you know, Robert Duvall, these are non, these are not what you define as movie stars, you know, a Robert Redford type. Yeah. You know, he had plenty going there, too, and Warren Beatty and everybody yeah. else. Yeah, and, and and they weren't, like, the kid, they, they, most of them, I mean, you know, Jane Fonda aside, or Peter, Peter Fonda aside, like, uh, most of them weren't the children of actors, or weren't yeah. children of privilege, or weren't, you know, or weren't your traditional, like, theater kids who were kind of. You know, they're like, you know, like a lot of them just like worked. You came from blue collar backgrounds from, you know, um, eth- ethnic neighborhoods in New York or whatever, you know. And so they, 
and and then they got the acting bug and then and then they got it and, and so all, all of a sudden there's just i don't know all these stories that were just represented uh, a wider at least like class range than you know the more aspirational stories or the more cleaner stories that um they get told and, you know I, you know pendulum goes back and forth but there's a huge difference um just even for me between writing a script for myself and then trying to, to develop a script from a property with producers and executives because no matter how well intended it's all kind of avoiding risks trying to tap into what was just successful and replicate it and like and so then almost by necessity unless you somehow got paired up with just the right person or, or whatever the case is the, the there's it's almost this um recipe for great creating generic stories you know and uh and there wasn't like the mania for adapting intellectual properties or franchises in sure. the 70s that there was but there is um there is now so yeah like it's um in my brain it's still 1973 1974 like <laughs> when i write on my own i'm i'm, I'm kind of almost writing for that market for those casts you know like you know i, I want to have you know i'm you know mentally i'm writing this for 25 year old pam greer and 35 year old gene hackman like i don't know you know like <laughs> they're no longer that you know they're now 90 and 70 or whatever you know um but anyways that's who are the current um more like i guess like current directors that scratch that itch for you oh god well um so like well, like a film that's coming out that i really want to see is after yang um, um oh yeah and, me too koganada is that uh i haven't yeah he did uh columbus, columbus. so so like movie. yeah so i loved columbus like that was great like that that had it wasn't trying to be anything from the 70s but it had that very character focused it seemed blissfully free of um convention but it also wasn't a nasal gaving a, a navel gazing kind of indie you know look at my pain it, 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 it very it, unaffected yeah it hit this and it was genuinely smart but it wasn't trying to show off its intelligence and so like that like that guy i'm very very um uh key to you know i think sean baker does really cool stuff um mm -hmm. deborah granick um uh, you know she only does a, a movie it seems like every eight years but you know leave no trace or winner's bone um I guess maybe, you know, like, I mean, Bong Joon-ho uh, is yeah. huge, um, you know, in terms of like, especially like um, he has so much emotional and tonal variety in his films that are that um, very few um, even auteurish filmmakers have these days. Like, that's something that I, I love from a lot of South Korean um cinema in particular you know like i yeah he can do anything yeah he can do any and he, he can he can be funny and sad in the same frame it's amazing you know yeah um so yeah and and, and i mean there's also standby chestnuts i mean i'm a i'm a huge quentin tarantino fan um and a huge martin scorsese fan like you know like you know like not everything i like is kind of esoteric like i you know like those those guys are like, you know, um, core, you know, I'll, I'll go out and see any Paul Thomas Anderson movie in the, in the theater, you know, like so some, uh, some of those, all day. some of those kind of typical, um, uh, reference points. Like I, I love, um, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but the, um, the Polish director who did Ida and Cold War. Yeah. The Cold War is fantastic. Yeah. I, uh, um, I, I don't know how to pronounce, I know what you're talking about, but you know what else too, for me, everybody you've mentioned but also in terms of somebody who can take studio notes and make his own thing is denny villeneuve i think he's yeah, yeah. one of the best major huge scope directors out there i mean granted it's relatively smaller at least smaller compared with what he's gone on to make including dune which is coming out soon but you know sicario is unbelievable yeah, Sic sicario is, is 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 the the big one for me too and his uh, he's like that that's something just that, that is like genuine filmmaking in the way of like especially with how he transformed a strong taylor sheridan script to read into something 
different and much more cinematic and much stronger and with much more of a, just a, I don't know, like that, like I, I'm just very, very impressed in that film by particular. That's, that's some, that's one that I studied just in terms of just cinematic storytelling, pacing, framing, you know, I mean, it helps to have Roger Deakins, yes. obviously. Um, Doesn't hurt. Yeah. But he has a point of view and yeah. a very, and he knows how to make his movie on his terms. Like Blade Runner 2049 is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And Arrival, you know, like it's everything he's done, I've been endlessly impressed by. And, you know, speaking of Taylor Sheridan, Hell or High Water is one of my favorite movies from the oh. last 10 years. Oh, yeah. No, me too. Hell, Hell or High Water is maybe, well, I mean, uh, after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it might be my favorite movie the last 10 years. Um those are the two from the last 10 years I watched the most. Um, yeah, that script. And that it took that script like seven or eight years to get made. Like it bounced around Hollywood with lots of different directors attached. Oh, really? Lots of different actors attached. It was kind of almost old news by the time David McKenzie directed it. And so... Because like, like the story behind that, right, was like that he... Maybe this is just a tall tale because it sells better in a room or something. But it was that he wrote... Sicario, Hell or High Water, and Wind River all in one fell swoop, and that was like his great Western trilogy. Yeah, I don't know it's, if he if he if he wrote them all at the same time, but I mean those are as far as I know, his first three scripts. And that's I mean, like, if there's any impressive. Yeah, if there's anybody whose career you know, I, I, I kind of yeah like would not mind approximating just about how he went about it, you know, like yeah, starting off with Sicario and um uh hello high water but then you know with wind river you know pretty modest budget i think maybe 10 or 12 million dollars he directed it himself but then yeah. you know and did did a good job i mean i don't i do think sicario and hello high water are are stronger than um wind river but it's it's strong and then but then to like then take that into you know writing and directing yellowstone himself and then now now he's kind of okay. th- there's this there's this kind of progression from you know uh step by step each one being ambitious but each kind of you know those first you know as a whole that makes those make sense to go from sicario you know to go from hell or hot water sicario wind river to yellowstone like he's kind of carved out this niche for himself and and yeah it's um and those who wish me dead he was somebody else's script that he took on so more of a i'm sure he rewrote it but yeah more of a director hat as opposed to a writer director yeah hat. yeah I mean, you know, it seems like he's transitioning for sure yeah now in my sense is maybe he he almost kind of came into um I, I, I this is just you know a half ass but like you know, almost came in to almost like rescue that film so it could get oh, okay. made in a way so like yeah i mean i i, I went and saw it in the theater and it, i mean it's not as strong as the other films like i it's a throwback it's a fun 90s movie yeah. yeah no totally exactly it's like yeah it's a throwback to like you know cliffhanger backdraft you know these kind of meat and potato you know like it, it doesn't have like you know the emotion to me is hell or high water you know or the resonance of sicario or the social you know kind of um gravitas of wind river it's yeah it's more it's a fun time at the, at the theater but also like i mean there's there's room for that too but yeah hell or high water is um um then that that and social network are my, I think the two scripts I most admire over like the last decade just in terms of just pure screenwriting like that's and probably hell or high water even more because like that's more what I you know like it's such a simple story but the characters are so fully realized and the world's so fully realized and it's so kind of arranged you know in just the right way that uh yeah and and, and it's it's a film that you know, like you can, you can enjoy it if you're like a cinema buff. But if you're just someone looking for a, you know, a good night out at the movies for two hours, it also fully satisfies on that. Like that's, that's a little bit of the grail for for what I would like to do. Yeah, I feel like um to your point about like Heather High Water, it's such a simple story told well that it's one of those magic trick movies where you watch it and you almost get the inclination of like oh i could do that because yeah. it seems so effortless which is why which only speaks to how complicated and impressive it is yeah no no and, and it doesn't hurt that it was cast pretty perfectly as well yeah 
I tell you what, yeah, I know. Like, I like how they that there's been that debate over the years of like who's the best Chris, which is like an internet talking point. But my longstanding position has always been it's Chris Pine, and you know it's one thing to like look the part of a movie star, but uh, it's another thing to have charisma or to be have the absence of charisma, and not very many people have that. And that dude has it all. He also makes really interesting choices he does, as an actor. He's great. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, like, as much... I, I've come to admire almost any any actor or actress who has a recognizable persona. Like, so I'm not... I'm never going to bad... Like, I would love to write a role for Chris Pratt or for Chris Evans or... Is there another Chris yeah. that I'm missing? Uh, Hemsworth. Hemsworth, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, to me, like, yeah, Pine is... You know, because, like, I can't see those guys, um, it, you know feeling as authentic as Chris Pine does in either Hell or High Water or in, uh, I don't know if you ever saw um, Unstoppable with uh, Denzel Washington, Tony Scott's last film. That movie's great. Yeah, that's, that, that movie's a blast. So, and, and Chris Pine is like, you know, and he's the son of an actor, you know, like what, the guy from Chips? Um, but yeah. but he's able to transform himself to feel like, no, this actually this is actually a dude who uh, has worked his life in Texas and has, has a life full of regrets. And like, you don't, his physicality and his look and how he carries himself feels authentic. Like, you know, I haven't quite, you know, like Chris Evans has done particularly interesting work in like, he was, you know, knives out and Snowpiercer, but that's, he hasn't like kind of transformed himself to the degree that I think Chris Pine has. So I'm, I'm likewise a, um, uh, you know, card carrying member of the, of the Chris, uh, Chris is Chris Pine is the top of the Chris's uh, uh, fan club. Okay. He just dropped off. So I'm going to wrap it up right now. Thank you all for listening. Please take care. Stay safe. Be well. Etc. Bye.